All right. Go ahead and be seated. Okay, welcome to church. Good. She's been seated this whole time. You hear that? (laughs) Well, I am very happy to be back here. Um, Like I was saying earlier, it has been 15 weeks since we have been able to gather like this and worship together. Um, And I also want to say hello to the probably 90% of our church that's watching online uh, tonight, as well as visitors. Thank you for uh, tuning in. So we are jumping into a brand new series this evening called Why Is This Even In Here? How to Understand Your Weird Bible. So let's start out with a little poll. Um, Raise your hand if in the course of your life, of course not all at once, but if in the course of your life you have read the entire Bible. Raise your hand. Okay, very good, very good. If you have never uh, read the entire Bible, I encourage you to make that a goal. Um, This is not to make anyone feel guilty if they have not. Um, but as Christians, one of the things that should be central to us is a knowledge of the Bible. We should know the Bible um, very, very well. And we can't do that unless we read it, right? Uh, question number two, okay? Raise your hand if you have ever read something in the Bible that was flat out weird. Okay, it's not sacrilegious to admit this, don't worry. There are places in the Bible that are flat out strange, okay? Okay. Now, raise your hand if you have ever read something in the Bible that was difficult to understand. I'm sure that's probably all of us. Have you ever read something in the Bible and asked, why is this even in here? Out of all the things that God could have put in this book, and there's limited space, out of all the things that could be in here, why am I reading this? We shouldn't act holier than thou and pretend that we don't ever experience those things. Let's all admit that there are some places in the Bible that make us scratch our heads and wonder why God put that there. There are even places in the Bible that are, dare I say, boring, uh, uninteresting. There are places in the Bible that seem pointless and useless. Again, there's a lot of different subjects that could be talked about in the Bible, and God didn't talk about all of them. And so, sometimes when we read a passage in the Bible, we ask, Lord, why did you include this when there's so many other things that I wish you would have spoken on? So, today's series begins uh, a journey into those obscure passages. Not all of them, of course, but I've selected a few of the more strange, difficult, Um, odd, weird passages in the Bible. And as we look at these passages, what I I hope is going to happen is we're going to see that these strange passages all tell a beautiful story that fits within the overarching, incredibly beautiful story of the Bible. And these weird passages are often filled with so much purpose and meaning that we skip over or, or miss out on completely because we're thousands of years removed from the original writing. And so we miss the eternal truths that are there. And so my hope in this series is that we're going to take a fresh look through ancient lenses um, at these passages and that by the end of this series, you'll not only be better equipped to understand the passages that we look at, but you will also be better equipped to understand the entire Bible. How does that sound? Good? 
Uh, no, it's been 15 weeks. I need to hear you. Does that sound good? <laughs> Thank you. Very good. So, today we're going to start with a passage in the Bible that more than likely you have only ever heard in the context of a debate. This passage is the trump card that is played by many biblical skeptics, um, and it's often played to prove that Christians are hypocrites that do not obey their Bibles. So, um, if you have a Bible or a device that has a Bible on it, navigate yourself to Leviticus chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 37. And uh, as I read, the Bible uh, verses will also be on the screen behind me. Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 19. God says, You shall keep my statutes. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. If a man lies sexually with a woman who was a slave assigned to another man and yet ransomed or given her freedom, a distinction shall be made. They shall not be put to death because she was not free. But he shall bring his compensation to the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting, a ram for a guilt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the guilt offering before the Lord for his sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven for the sin he has committed. When you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Do not profane your daughter by making her a prostitute, lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, and so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am I am the Lord your God. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And you shall observe all of my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. So, in this passage, in Leviticus 19, and if we were to rewind and and read chapter 18, and then also chapter 20, and various other places um, in the book of Leviticus, but especially in this chapter, some weird laws here. The Israelites are forbidden uh, from wearing clothing made with two different kinds of fiber. Um, They are forbidden from sowing two different kinds of seed in the same field. Forbidden from crossbreeding their cattle. Elsewhere, the Israelites are forbidden from eating shellfish 
any meat that still has the blood in it. So think uh, medium rare steak, i.e. the only way to eat it. And worst of all, they are forbidden from eating pork, which counts out bacon. These seem like terrible, terrible rules, right? They are not permitted to shave the corners of their beards, which brings up a number of questions like why and where is the corner of a beard because as I examine mine, I see no corners at all. They're not allowed to touch an unclean animal. They're not allowed to sacrifice their children to Molech. Actually, that seems like a pretty good one. But we read these laws and we scratch our heads and we ask the question, why is this even in here? Furthermore, why are we not obeying these commands? This, after all, is the cry of the skeptic, is it not? That when we bring up any issue of sin or we bring up the responsibility of Christians to obey the Bible, they point to passages like this and they say, but you don't even obey the Bible. Look at all of these laws that you are not following. And so the average Christian in this situation will punt. And they'll say, well, you know, that was the Old Testament. So we're kind of fuzzy on the details. But we're New Testament Christians. But that's not a very good answer either, is it? Because there's a lot lot of things that we still follow in the Old Testament. For example, the Ten Commandments we agree are still binding. So, how on earth are we to understand these laws, and more importantly, our relationship to them? So, I want to start tonight by giving you four laws of scriptural interpretation. Four laws of scriptural interpretation. And these four laws will help us to not only understand today's passage, but they will help us to understand every page of the Bible. These four laws of scriptural interpretation apply to every single word in this book. So, the better we understand these four things, the better we will understand everything we read in the Word of God. And we're going to come back to these four laws in this series over and over and over and over again. And I'm I'm going to keep repeating them over and over and over again, so that hopefully by the end, they've been pounded into all of our skulls and we will never ever forget. Okay, so let's start with law number one, and hopefully you're a note taker, okay? Uh, The first law of scriptural interpretation is this. The Bible must be read as an ancient document. The Bible must be read as an ancient document. This is God's eternal word. It is always relevant. It always applies it will always be true. But we have to understand that the Bible was written at a particular time, in a particular place, to a particular group of people by a particular set of authors. And so, both the audience and the author of every passage that we read was an ancient one. That means that we cannot make the mistake of reading modern thoughts, modern practices into ancient texts. In each text that we read, we must first understand the ancient context. And we're familiar uh, as Bible readers that context matters, right? Well, what we don't often think about is the ancient context. 
We often think about the, the place where it falls within a particular chapter or the verses surrounding whatever we're reading as context, but it's also true that there is an ancient context. We have to establish that first. And once we establish the ancient context, we can then extrapolate from that the eternal truths that God put there for all time. Once we read it as an ancient document, it can then be read as an eternal document. Okay? And those two things are simultaneously true. When I'm saying the Bible is an ancient document, I'm not saying that it isn't also an eternal one. It is. I do not want us to make the mistake that so many people make of looking at the Bible as an ancient text and saying, well, you know, these were ancient people. They didn't know what we know now. And this is often the lens through which so many people read the Bible. This was written thousands of years ago by people who have no knowledge of modern science or modern philosophy or psychology. And so they were doing the best they could, um, but we know more now. We understand more now. That is not what I mean when I say the Bible is an ancient document. And I would argue that none of those statements are true. If we are uh, assuming that the Bible is inspired by God, trust me, there is nothing we have learned that he doesn't already know. It is not as if we have made any discoveries in science or psychology or any other field that God is now up in heaven going, well, crap, I didn't think of that. I should have put that in the Bible. Maybe I should come up with another edition. That will never happen. The Bible as an ancient document simply means that we have to understand how the original author meant for the original audience to understand what was being written. And we establish that and we build from it eternal truth. Okay? Uh, Law number two. We must note the difference between prescription and description. Note the difference between prescription and description. I might have it the other way around uh, on the slide there. This is essential to understand the difference between descriptive and prescriptive text. And here's what I mean by that. There are some places in the Bible that are simply describing something that took place. Describing an event or series of events. Describing some historical thing that took place. Then there are other places that say, here's what you should go and do. Now, there are some places in the Bible that are both, descriptive and prescriptive. Some places in the Bible both record something and then say, now you go and do likewise. But we have to note the difference between passages that are just describing something that happened and passages that are saying, this is a holy thing that you also should go do. There have been a number of times when I've talked to a skeptic and and they've said to me, well, gosh, I read some of these things in the Bible that are just awful. For example, you have uh, passages in the Bible where immorality takes place. Is God really defending that? The answer, of course, is no. It is recording the immorality that took place, not prescribing that you go and copy it yourself. Just because the Bible has recorded something doesn't mean it's recommending. The recording is not an automatic endorsement. And so we have to note the difference between the two. And I think one of the great things about the Bible is that we're blessed to have a holy word that records the failures of its main characters. That shows every single one of the heroes in the Bible in their most unflattering light. 
That should give us hope because it shows us that God can use failures like us too. Every single one of the people in the Bible that we look, look up to, save Jesus Christ himself, was a complete, total, utter failure. Filled with sin and wrong. We have murderers, we have adulterers, we have liars, we have thieves, and every sin under the book. God records those things and quite often says, now go and do the opposite of what just happened. So, we have to note the difference between description and prescription. Uh, Law number three, genre matters. See, within the pages of the Bible, we have a number of different literary genres. And these literary genres cannot all be read in the same way. Uh, Represented in the Bible are many genres that include things like poetry, narrative, law, There are parables, there's pastoral direction, there are letters. And we have to understand what type of genre we're we're reading so that we can properly uh, understand it. For example, if we're reading something that is obviously poetic, we probably ought not take that literally. When the Bible uses literary devices like hyperbole, as we often do even today, We can't make the mistake of looking at a passage like that and saying, well, gosh, this never came true. It was meant to be an exaggeration to drive home a truth. And again, this is something that we do today. So let's not forget that it was used back then as well. Genre matters. Finally, uh, scriptural interpretation law number four, scripture interprets scripture. With every passage that we come to, and especially the difficult ones, We have to interpret those things in light of the rest of Scripture. Because when we take a passage and we rip it out of its home in the body of Scripture, we cannot ever properly interpret it. And this is true not only of the Bible, but of every book you read. Are there any Harry Potter fans in the room? Okay? Not many. Maybe there are some watching online. (laughs) I am too, don't give me that look. Uh, The Harry Potter series uh, is in its main books uh, an anthology of seven different books. Now, if you were to come to a place in any of those books that didn't seem to make sense, something that seems out of place or out of sorts, something that you can't quite wrap your head around, would you seek to try to understand that difficulty by pulling out your uh, Lord of the Rings books? No, you wouldn't, because those books have nothing to do with these. In order to figure out what you're trying to understand in this Harry Potter book, you would compare it to the rest of the seven books. You would find where that particular story fits within the story told across the seven books of the series. You would put it in the context of the rest of the anthology. The Bible is the same way. When we come to places that are difficult or hard to understand, we take those and we understand them in the light of the rest of the story. Scripture interprets Scripture. So, the four laws that we will come back to over and over and over again. Number one, the Bible must be read as an ancient document. Number two, note the difference between description and prescription. Number three, genre matters. And number four, Scripture interprets Scripture. There will be a test at the end of the series, but not tonight. So, now that we have established those four laws, 
let's go back to Leviticus chapter 19 and use that understanding in order to interpret these things uh, a bit better. Especially using law number one, which is reading the Bible as an ancient document. So, if you're taking notes, here is point number one. Not all laws are created equal. Not all laws are created equal. Um, Brief disclaimer before I get into this point. Uh, There will be five points in this sermon. And uh, I've already gone over four, so that makes a total of nine. And I assure you that that doesn't mean I'll be up here for two hours. Though I could, because I'm so excited to finally be doing this in front of people and not just a camera. So even though I could preach for two hours, and nine points would seem to suggest that I would be, don't worry, I'm going to keep it under an hour and a half. (laughs) Uh, That's also a joke. Point number one. Not all laws are created equal. There are, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, three types of laws. There are civil laws, there are ceremonial laws, and there are moral laws. And perhaps you've heard this before. And I'll explain in just a few moments the difference between each of those types of laws. But to illustrate what we're going to get into, uh, let me ask you a question. By a show of hands, how many of you think that you are obligated to follow every law in the United States? Must you obey all of the laws in the United States? How many of you would say no? Okay. How about the state of Indiana? Are you obligated to follow all of the laws in the state of Indiana? Yes? Okay. How many of you would say no? You are not obligated. The natural response to this question might seem to be yes. Of course, you don't want to break laws or else you would be a criminal, right? But the correct answer to this question is actually no. You are not obligated to follow every law in the United States, nor are you obligated to follow every law in the state of Indiana. You are obligated to follow every law that applies to you. And that is the key difference. For example, there are many laws in the United States that are written regarding immigration. If you are a natural-born citizen of the United States, you will never have to follow any of those laws because you're not an immigrant. So those things don't apply to you. There are laws and codes written to regulate the safe drilling of oil. But unless you are working for an oil company, those laws will never apply to you. There are traffic laws that apply to absolutely everyone, like the speed limit. But there are also traffic laws that only apply to truck drivers, like the truck speed limit. And so, as you are driving along the road, you can completely ignore the sign that says truck speed limit, because you are not a truck driver. So, there are laws that apply to absolutely everyone in the country, and then there are laws that only apply to specific people. And so, our obligation is to obey the laws that apply to us. The Bible is the same way. Does every law in the Bible apply to every person in every time period? The answer 
is no. There were a number of laws that were written specifically for certain people. And even the Israelites, as they uh, understood these laws at the time, knew this to be the case. For example, there were laws that only applied to the priests that were serving in the temple. And the average Israelite would have understood that these laws did not apply to them. So he had no obligation to follow the law for a priest. There were laws, and we read some of them, that applied to immigrants. There were laws that applied to farmers, laws that applied to shepherds, laws that applied specifically to business. Not every law applied to every person. And understanding that is very important to us. Because there were, of course, in the Bible, laws that applied to everyone. Laws like the Ten Commandments, which were handed down by God to the entire nation. So the entire nation of Israel understood that the Ten Commandments applied to every single person. So how did the people back then, and how should we differentiate between these laws? So, like I said, three types of laws, civil, ceremonial, and moral. Civil laws were laws written to the nation of Israel living during uh, the conquest of the land of Canaan. So, these laws included things like how they should assimilate outsiders into the nation of Israel, how they should uh, engage in proper trade and business practices with the surrounding nations, and how they should determine the value of particular possessions. Uh, This uh, verse in verse 35 where he talks about um, having proper measurements and quantities is a, a law about possession and value. So those are civil laws. Ceremonial laws governed how the Israelites were to worship God properly in the temple and in the tabernacle. They detailed uh, the animal sacrificial system. They detailed how the priests were to manage every aspect of their conduct. So ceremonial laws uh, applied specifically to tabernacle and temple worship. And then there were moral laws. Moral laws were laws that were based upon the character of God and were given to every single person to follow. These moral laws were the foundation upon which every other law was built. And because the nature of God is unchanging, so too is the morality that is built upon it. And these moral commandments are unchanging. And the New Testament in many places confirms the preeminence of the moral law. And so, moral laws were binding on every person then and are uh, still today. So, again, as it pertains to our lives in the United States, we are not obligated to follow laws that apply to immigrants, truck drivers, oil companies, etc., if we are not one of those people. And in the same vein, we must ask these questions. Are you... Um, obligated to follow civil laws written to Israelites in Canaan? Yes or no? Are you obligated to follow civil laws written to the Israelites in Canaan? The answer is no. (laughs) But thank you for your honesty. (laughs) Are you required to follow ceremonial laws regarding how to worship in the temple? No. No. Are you required to follow laws that are based on the unchanging nature of God that apply to absolutely everyone? 
Yes. So, those are the differences between these laws. Now, that doesn't mean that we should look at laws that don't apply to us and throw them out completely, saying, well, those are no longer relevant. As I said before, once we understand the ancient context, we can then extrapolate the eternal truth. And there are eternal truths that are contained even in the civil and ceremonial laws that still are true today. Every single law that God wrote had a purpose. God God handed down all 600 plus of these laws, not to just give a bunch of arbitrary rules and regulations, right? Parents understand that you don't just make up rules for your kids to follow just because you feel like it. I mean, maybe you do, but I don't. I have a hard enough time getting my kids to follow the rules that they do need to follow. So I'm not about to make up a bunch of dumb ones that have no purpose. God is the same way. Every single one of these things has a reason. So let's take a deeper look at these laws. Here is point number two. The laws that we read about here served to make the Israelites distinct. And we also are commanded to be distinct. These laws were given to make the Israelites different than the surrounding nations. They were meant to make the Israelites stand out in their conduct. If you have a Bible, uh, take a look at the next chapter uh, in Leviticus 20, verse 26. And I failed to put it on the screen. Um, But it should only be on the next page for you, or just a scroll of the thumb upwards. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26, God says this, You shall be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Now notice what this law is based upon. This law is based upon the unchanging nature of God. And because that nature is still the same today, we also must follow the moral obligation in this law, where God says, be holy, for I am holy. And then he says that he separated them from the people, that the people should be his own. The same is true for these laws that seem so strange to us. As modern readers, again, thousands of years separated from the original writing, these things sound really, really weird. Why on earth would God say uh, to the Israelites, don't cut the corner of your beard? Why would he say to them, uh, don't sow two different kinds of seed in the same field? Why would he say, you shall not um, have clothing made with two different kinds of fiber? Every single one of us is wearing clothing that's made of different types of fiber. These, these laws seem arbitrary, random, purposeless. Why would God just come up with that out of the blue? Well, he didn't. These things would serve as a visual cue in the ancient world. These things would communicate to everyone else, these people are different. And it would make the people ask the question, why? You see, because everyone else back then was cutting the corners of their beards, whatever that means. 
Everyone else back then was sowing different kinds of seeds in their fields. Everyone else back then was wearing garments made of whatever type of cloth they wanted. And so when they saw the Israelites and that they were different, obviously, it would make them ask the question, why? And so that same truth applies to us today. Leviticus 20, 26, be holy for I am holy. Now the Israelites obeyed this by following these weird ceremonial and civil laws. But we're still called to follow the spirit of these verses. The eternal truth that's there. We may not display the holiness of God by avoiding uh, cutting our beards. Obviously I have not uh, followed that law. Um, But we do live a holy life. The way that we talk, the words that we use, the way that we act, the way that we treat people, the things that we post online, the entertainment we consume, a host of other things. These things ought to make us distinct. Now, I'm not advocating a type of life where we're snooty, uppity, you know, self-righteous people that act like they're better than everyone else. That's not at all what I'm saying. The goal for us is to be attractively different. Attractively different. The goal is for people to notice he's not like us. She isn't like us. They're definitely one of us, but... They're not the same as us. They love us, but they're different. The sad thing is, far too many Christians today blend in far too well. Far too many Christians don't live any differently than the world around them. And the only way that anyone would even know that that you're a Christian is a random comment dropped here or there, or on your Facebook it says, Christian. And that's a shame. That is not what we are called to. We are called to be attractively different. We are called to be holy. Uh, Point number three. These laws served as experiential analogies. I've used the term experiential analogy before, and here's simply what it means. It is an analogy that you experience. (laughs) It's something that you live out. For example... Uh, We understand that scripture tells us God loves us the way that a father loves his children. And before I was a dad, I understood that. I understood the concept. It, It made sense to me. But the first time that I held this little nugget in my arms, there was something unlocked in my heart. And it was as if in that moment I truly understood, ah, this is what it means that God loves us like a father. Now I actually experience it and so I know it. And so there are many things that God sets up that we experience that teach us a deeper story. These laws are that way. They are experiential analogies. Let me read for us uh, verse 19 once more. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. (laughs) It's okay. So, when an Israelite would follow this law, it would be like an experiential analogy. Um, To use a different way of of describing it, these laws functioned like sticky notes in their lives. 
Um, have any of you ever used a sticky note as a reminder where you would put it up on a, a mirror or the fridge or someplace in your house that you write something that you, you are trying not to forget and you put it on a sticky note and you put it somewhere where you're going to see? Anybody ever done that? I've done it a bunch of times because I tend to forget things very, very easily. And so I can just write something out on a sticky note and put it somewhere where I know I'm going to see it and it's going to remind me. That is what these laws functioned as for the Israelites, like sticky notes. They were things that they could visually see and experience every single day. These were inconvenient things. As they did these inconvenient things, it would remind them of the holiness of God. It would remind them of their need to be distinct. As the Israelites were making clothing and were farming and every other detail of their lives, they would be forced to reflect. Why am I doing this? Why am I not using different types of fiber? And the correct answer in that moment wasn't because God said so. The correct answer was because doing this is symbolic of what I'm doing with my heart. I am keeping it pure and undefiled before the Lord. I'm not allowing my heart to be mixed with different things. I'm not allowing my heart to be influenced by the world's ways. I'm making sure that my heart remains pure. And so following these weird, obscure laws became an outward symbol of an inward reality. The inward reality was a heart that's dedicated to holiness. So, what might this look like? First Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Um, Peter writes this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The key phrase there is that people are surprised when we do not jump into the same things as they do. When we live distinctly different lives in an attractive way, people will look at that and go, why are you so different than the rest of us? Why don't you do the things and say the things and be the things that we are? But what it leads to is opportunity for the gospel to shine brightly in people's lives. Every time we obey the inconvenient commands of God, we share with the world the covenant that we have with Christ. Number four, these laws reveal God's holiness and purity and call us to imitate the same thing. These laws were in such specificity, down to minute details, And what it would reveal to the people is just how holy and pure God is. It would be impossible for these people to have a small view of the holiness of God. When every minute details of of their lives had to be carefully managed in order to to begin to even approach 
God's holiness. Imagine if we lived under a system like this. Imagine if we had to follow every single one of these laws. Our impression of God would be that he is so holy, I could never measure up to that. Imagine if all God said to us was, I just want you to be a pretty good person. Do your best. Be nice. Be moral. Don't be mean. Treat everybody well. Do you know what that would create? It would create rampant self-righteousness. It would create a view of God not at all different from us. Not at all unattainable. Not at all separate. God doesn't need to be very holy to tell us to be decent people. But that's what so much of modern Christianity has turned into. It has turned into just be nice and moral and loving. You know, the golden rule and all that. But we're called to something so much deeper than that, my friends. We're called to something deeper than moralism and manners. We're called to a life of holiness. And these laws show just how pure and holy God was. In handing down all of these laws in such specific detail, governing every part of their lives, they are only given the impression that God is unattainably holy. The impression that they would be left with is, how on earth am I ever going to measure up to that? And that is exactly the point. Final point. These laws were given to us to point to our need for a savior. These laws were given to us to point to our need for a savior. We were always meant to see our need for God in the law. Jesus squared off with the Pharisees so often about the law. And what he squared off with them the most was the purpose that these laws were written. You see, the Pharisees made the mistake of looking at the law and, and they saw it in the opposite way that Jesus did. They saw it and they said, these are all the things that I have to do in order to earn my way to God. These are all the things that I have to do to please him and earn his favor. If we just keep these laws, we're gonna make sure that we are righteous. And Jesus looked at them and said, you are heaping a burden on the people that they cannot possibly bear. We were always meant to look at the law and say, this is impossible. I I could never do this. I need God to have mercy on me. This is why Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says this, the law is a teacher, a tutor, a schoolmaster, which leads us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. So the question that I have for every one of you is this. Have you been brought to that point? Have you ever been brought to the point where you recognize your desperate need for a savior? Or has Christianity just been about being a good person who's moral and nice and and as long as you believe the proper facts about God and you're not a jerk, God is okay with you. If you have never realized your desperate need for a savior, then perhaps it's a good idea to examine whether or not you truly know him at all. These laws were given to an ancient people at an ancient time. But the eternal truth still rings clearly today. These laws remind us to be holy 
and to be distinct. They remind us that God is holy and they remind us of our need for Jesus. That, my friends, is why this is even in here. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this opportunity that you have given us to study your word. Lord, I thank you that you have uh, given us the, the chance to see the truth that is contained within these pages. And God, I pray for every person that is here, every person that's listening on the podcast or watching online. Lord, I pray most of all for those who have never realized their desperate need for a savior. God, if there be any uh, who are listening who have never come to that place, Lord, I pray that you would bring them there today, that they would see just how badly they need you. Lord, I ask that uh, you would take them one step closer to you, perhaps even to the step of surrender, to ask you to be their Savior and their Lord. Lord, I pray for the rest of us, especially those of us who claim to follow after you. Lord, that you would help us to have a deeper understanding of your scripture so that we might be bearers and ambassadors of your word to the world. Help us to be holy and attractively different, to be distinct, and that our lives might preach the gospel to a dark and lonely public. God, I pray as we sing our final song, Lord, that our hearts would respond to you in whatever way your spirit is leading us to do so. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, um, we will uh, close with our final worship song.